Good morning. It's good to see you. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. <clears throat> what a blessing it is to realize all the gifts that we receive from God. <clears throat> in fact, everything that we have and all that we are comes from Him. And it is wondrous blessing to recognize that and to acknowledge that <clears throat> and to count our blessings and the blessing of, of assembly upon the first day of the week. We've been going through a study of the, uh, the life of David and uh, in particular to, there we go. In particular, we've been looking at events in the life of David um, that we can emulate to be a person after God's own heart. The scripture tells us that God said he had chosen a man that was after his own heart. And the book of Acts tells us because he would do all the will of God. That's what David's heart was, was to do the will of God. David was certainly not a perfect person as none of us are he was he was frail humanity like the rest of it's of us but in the calling the things that God called him to do he would give his best efforts to do the will of God and as we've gone through this story of David's life we've we've seen him come from the from being called from the sheepfold from tending the sheep the sheep field to being anointed as the the king the successor to the throne of Israel when Saul had disappointed God, when he had sinned and failed to do the will of God, and he was rejected by God as king. As, as just a lad, he was anointed to be that next king, and some time later we find his going out in, in victory against Goliath when all of Israel was afraid that through the power of God he, he, ha he knew that he would prevail, and he did. And after that, he was brought into the house, into the palace, into the house of Saul himself. And he, he had great success there as, as a captain over the armies of Israel. But soon Saul became jealous. Soon he began to realize maybe what was going on, that in fact David was the successor. He had been told that he had been rejected by God. And soon that jealousy turned into a pursuit of David in an attempt to kill and kill him, and for years he was on the run, and and finally we see where where Saul dies in in battle. He and his sons are killed in battle, and David returns. He's able to from to return from exile, and he is anointed as king over the house of Judah. So he is. There's still a divided kingdom. The house of Saul would remain in power over the rest of Israel for another seven years. But then finally, we see that the kingdom is united and David is recognized as king over all or Lord of all over Israel. And when David becomes king, he wants to, he wants to set some things right. And so he, first of all, he captures what has been a thorn in the side of Israel from the time that they entered the, the land of Canaan and that is Jerusalem, which was occupied by an enemy that they were never able before to outthrow. But now united under David, they capture the city of Jerusalem. And David makes Jerusalem the capital city. That's where his, his throne will be. 
And then he goes out and he, is, he goes back out in battle against the Philistines, which have been a thorn in the side of, of Israel from the time that Saul became king and he subdues, subdues them. He defeats them and he drives them out. So finally, there is rest. There is peace and he wants to bring unity to all of Israel and so he wants to restore the worship of God. And in our last study, we talked about David's desire to go get the Ark of the Covenant and restore the true worship of God and, and bring it back and, and the, the worship of the tabernacle to Jerusalem and the things that he went through there and the lessons that were learned concerning the will of God and the commandments of God. And finally, that happens, and so that is restored. And so the next thing that David wants to do is he wants to build a house for God. He looks at the tent that houses the Ark of the Covenant, and he says, you know, those around him in the, during this time had built a palace for David there in Jerusalem. And he said, here I am living in a palace, and God is dwelling in a tent. And God said, did I ever complain to you about how I dwelt here in what a tent, you know? He, but anyway, he wants to build that uh, tabernacle, that t the, uh, the temple there in Jerusalem. And God tells him, you're not going to build the temple, but your son will. Your son will do that. And he goes on to make a promise to David that he's going to have a successor of his descendants that will sit up on the throne and that will build him a house. And, we've, and, and Ian spoke recently about those events there in the seventh chapter of 2 Samuel and how there was a dual, there was two, a twofold fulfillment of that promise. One was that Solomon, his son, would become the king and would build the temple, but more importantly, that through his descendants would come the Christ, the Messiah, who would build the true house of God, whose house we are today, the temple of God, the church, <clears throat> that being Jesus Christ. And so... The next thing that David does, we read about in, the, in 2 Samuel chapter 8. He goes out and he begins, I hope I do this the right direction. I probably won't. I always, well, I'm not very good with, <laughs> with uh, there we go. I'll do it the, the old-fashioned way. <clears throat> So in 2 Samuel chapter 8, we find in this map, if you can kind of see in the center there, you see a purple area, and that's Judah, and the yellow area, and that was Israel. So when the kingdom was divided between the house of David and the house of Saul, that's kind of how it was divided up. But that was basically all of Israel. What David did next is he went out and he subdued all of the enemies around him. He conquered all of these territories that you see in green. And it talks about in 2 Samuel chapter 8 that he subdued the Philistines, the Philistines which had been the enemy, arch enemy of Israel for a long time. And we see their little area down there on the southern, southwestern part of the, of the map here. And that was, these guys were just a thorn in their side, but he subdued them. And then it talks about that he defeated Moab, which is kind of on the eastern part there. He defeated Zobah, which is in the northern part, the, the green part there, and Syria, which occupied that territory they became the servants of David. Edom, also down here in the south and the east, became servants to David. And Hamath, up in the far north, became an ally to David. So David goes out and he, and he basically he subdues all of the enemies of Israel, or God subdues them through David. And so 
there is finally there is peace and there is rest and and David again has time to contemplate now all of these things happened over a period of years David was anointed king at the age of, of 30 over Judah seven years later he became king over all of Israel so he would have been about 37 years old <clears throat> This is probably somewhere between 15 and 20 years later when we come to 2 Samuel chapter 9. <clears throat> and David says this. Now David said, Is there still anyone who is left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? That's kind of a off-the-wall comment maybe we would think so why was David concerned about this why did David say is there anyone left of the house of Saul Saul was his enemy remember Saul was the one who pursued him and made his life miserable for many years and drove him into exile and sought to kill him but we know that when David had the opportunity to avenge himself against Saul he refused to do it he said because Saul was the anointed of God he had been anointed as king, and it would not be by the hand of David that harm came to him. The other thing that we remember about David and the house of Saul is Saul's son, Jonathan, in which he refers to here. When David had defeated Goliath and he was brought into the palace to, to live there and to, to work under Saul, he, he became very close friends, in fact, extremely close friends with Jonathan. The scripture says he loved him as his own soul. They were they, they, had a, they had a friendship that was closer than, than that of brothers. And Jonathan, we find back here, we go back and we, we read about the account back in 1 Samuel chapter 20. When it became evident to Jonathan that David was indeed the anointed of God, that one day he would be king over Israel. Jonathan was the heir to the throne. He was the successor to Saul. It would have been he who was king, but he realized God's will. He realized that it was God's design that David was going to be that king. There was no jealousy or enmity there on the part of Jonathan. He loved David, and he recognized that it was his right to reign. And so, seeing the intent of his father that, that they were going to be at, at odds, the family of Saul and the family of David, and seeing what would happen in the future, that David would, asc would ascend to the throne, he made a covenant with David. And this was very important. Because of their close friendship, it was customary during that time and throughout history that when, when one uh, regime, which one, when one family, one monarchy, when they were, when they were dethroned by someone else, that that family was exterminated to prevent someone trying to bring an uprising or re return them to the throne. That was just something that happened. And Jonathan said, David, you can't do that to us. You can't do that to us. He said, you shall not only show me kindness of the Lord while I still live that I may not die, not take your revenge against me, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. David, Jonathan said, David, I know there's going to come a time when God is going to give you victory over all of your enemies. And when that happens, do not count me as one of them, and do not count my house as a threat to you, but make a covenant that you will show kindness 
You will show mercy and grace. In fact, he says the kindness of the Lord, the kindness that would be attributed to the Lord as to those who are in covenant relationship with him, the kind of love that God shows to us as his children. That is the kind of grace or mercy that that Jonathan asked for and that they make an agreement, a promise to keep that. Again, the kindness of the Lord, you shall not off your, cut off your kindness for me forever, not when the Lord has cut off all of your enemies. So why did David remember this promise at this time? The scripture doesn't tell us. I'm assuming because of the events we read about in chapter 8, what has happened. God has subdued all the enemies of David. To me, this promise was always in the back of David's mind. He never, he never forgot this covenant that he had made. His preoccupation from the time that he took the throne was to unite Israel and to secure Israel. And he had been busy about all of those things and suddenly all of that has been accomplished. His enemies are subdued. And what does he remember? He remembers that promise he made to Jonathan. And so there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And so when they had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, it's your service. And the king said, is there still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? So what we see here is David asked his counselors, those of his, of his uh, close advisors of his family, and says, is there anybody left in the house of Saul that, we can, that I can show the kindness of the Lord to? And apparently the answer was nobody knew. <laughs> <clears throat> Saul's house had been virtually emptied and they had been scattered, those who remained. And so those who were close to David didn't recognize this, but somebody said, hey, there's a servant who served in the house of Saul named Ziba. Let's call him in. And so David did. And he asked him, he asked Ziba, who was familiar with the family, who would know where they had gone, is there anyone left? Is there anyone left that I can show kindness to? And David uses that same term that Jonathan had used to him, that I may show him the kindness of God. <clears throat> to me, this, this, this vow, this covenant that David had, had made was still very vivid to him. It was, I mean, he uses the same language, exact language that Jonathan had used. And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. <clears throat> There's still one there's a grandchild of Saul that's out there. You know, when we look in the book of Chronicles, it, descri- it tells us about there were four sons of Saul. Three of those sons were killed at the same time that Saul was killed in battle. There was one other son whose name was Ishbosheth, who after Saul had been killed, that Abner, who was the captain over the armies of Saul, appointed him, made him basically the puppet king of Israel. It was Abner who really pulled the strings. But Ishbosheth, after a period of time, was, Abner was killed, and then men of his own army murdered him, which basically cleared the path for David to become king over all of Israel. So there were the four sons of Saul, and all of them had been killed. There's no record of grandchildren by the other three sons. The only grandchild that is mentioned is this one. Mephibosheth. 
And the scripture says here that he was lame in his feet. In fact, we go back to 2 Samuel chapter 4, and it gives us the event. How did Mephibosheth become crippled? And it says, Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. Now, if you go back and you read 2 Samuel chapter 4, this is just kind of like, just kind of, it just sticks out right in the middle of another description to tell you this. And the reason it tells you this is because this was the only heir that was left. This was the only heir that was left to the, through, the thought, through the throne of Saul. So if there were any threats left out there that David had to be concerned about wanting to, you know, bring back the throne to the house of Saul, it was Mephibosheth. But Mephibosheth was crippled, and it tells us how. It says, when he was five years old, the news came about Saul and Jonathan from Jezreel and his nurse took him up and fled and it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame and his name was Mephibosheth. <clears throat> so what's happened here? Where's Mephibosheth? He's in the palace. He's the grandson of the king. He has grown up in the palace. He has known what it's like to live in royalty for this period of time and then suddenly everything changes. I'm sure there have been conversations about if this ever happens, you need to get out. If Saul is killed and, and his sons, those who are left in the palace, you need to be afraid because David's going to come and he's going to exterminate you. I mean, I'm sure that's what they'd been told. So when that happens, you've got to get out. You've got to go into hiding. You've got to go into exile. And so what happens? The news comes. Saul and Jonathan have been killed. <clears throat> There's panic in the palace. We've got to get out. We're next. And so in their haste, it says a nurse grabbed up Mephibosheth. He's five years old. And they're running. And somewhere along the way, she stumbles, she trips, she drops him something. Maybe he falls from a, you know, a, a, from a height of some distance. Who knows? But somehow... Probably his feet, his ankles are broken in such a way that he never, he never heals. They can't, it can't heal properly, and he is crippled from that time forward. So Mephibosheth has gone from the grandson of the king living in luxury of the palace to some, one day the rug is completely pulled out from under him, and he's a cripple, and he's in hiding in fear of David for some 15 plus years before the events that we find here in 2 Samuel 9. And so the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, indeed, he is in the house of Mekur, the son of Emil in Lodabar. He's in the house of Mekur. And Mekur, is, is, we read about in other places in scriptures. In fact, Mekur later we're going to find it was one that gave aid to David when his son Absalom brought revolt against him as king and he was, he was forced to, to flee Jerusalem. It was Mercure actually gave aid to David in that time. But we also kind of gather here that he was close to the family of Saul, that he was someone that they were close to and so that he, he basically took Mephibosheth into his home to, to take care of following the death of Jonathan and of, and of Saul. And he's living in a place <clears throat> called Lodabar. And according to what 
people believe where Lodabar was was in the northern province, the northern part of Palestine. And, and that word Lodabar means no pasture land. It was apparently a desolate place. Um, so others have, have uh, translated its meaning as being nothing or nowhere. <laughs> he, he, he lived in the middle of nowhere. He was in a very desolate place. <clears throat> he was in a very desolate place desperate situation he was crippled he was driven from the palace he was living in fear he was like in a witness protection program almost fearing the day that the knock would come upon his door that they had found him that they knew where he was and they knew who he was and the condemnation would come upon him because of who he was then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Mekur, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. So David sends for him. He sends people to go out and get Mephibosheth and bring him back before him, to bring him to Jerusalem. David's intentions are only good. David wants to bless Mephibosheth because of his love for his friend Jonathan. He wants to shower his love, the kindness of God, upon Mephibosheth. But Mephibosheth has no idea of what David's intentions are. He may have been given some description as they were bringing him, but certainly when the knock came upon the door of Mephibosheth, there had a, that panic had to set in again. They finally found me. I'd always feared this day was going to come, and now it's come. David has found me. He probably accepted, was resolved to his fate. What was he going to do? He couldn't run. He was crippled. And so I'm sure he went with them with a certain amount of fear mixed with resentment and anger. Probably. I'm not bothering anybody. I'm, you know, look at what my life is. I'm living nowhere. I'm, I'm in Lodabar. I'm crippled. I'm a threat to no one. What does he want with me? Why is he doing this to me? <clears throat> so now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. And then David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, here is your servant. What does Mephibosheth do when he comes before David? He falls to his face. He's basically pleading for his life. And David says, Mephibosheth. And he says, I'm here, I'm your servant. In total humility before the king, recognizing his fate lays in the hands of David. And David says to him, do not fear. For I will show you, the, show you kindness for, your, for Jonathan, your father's sake. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather. And you shall eat bread at my table continually. <clears throat> so there's three things that David says to Mephibosheth. Number, the first thing he tells him is don't fear. Don't be afraid. My intentions for you are good. They are not evil. I am not bringing you here to condemn you. I am bringing you here to bless you. The next thing he does is he restores his inheritance. 
He says, I'm going to restore to you all the lands that belong to Saul. Wow. <laughs> Saul was the king. Saul had a lot of lands. He had a lot of possessions. Mephibosheth, who had lived probably in a certain, to a certain degree, maybe even in poverty, but certainly in a land with no pasture, a desolate place, is suddenly showered with blessings by David. And finally, he says he makes him a member of his own household, of his own family with a seat at his table for the rest of his life. Not only is he restored with all of these blessings, but he is adopted basically as a son of David. He will sit at David's table with David's sons. He will be treated as his own son. <clears throat> then Mephibosheth bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? Mephibosheth's response is... What have I done to deserve this? Mephibosheth had done nothing to deserve this. He recognized this. There was nothing that David owed to Mephibosheth. There was nothing that Mephibosheth had done to, to earn these blessings. It was simply because of the kindness that David had promised to Jonathan, his dear friend, and the love, loving mercy of God that he promised to bless upon the house of Saul. <clears throat> and the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belong to Saul to all his house. You therefore, your sons and your servants, shall work the land for him, and you shall bring in the harvest, that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants, so he had plenty of help to do the work. And Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he will eat at my table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who dwelt in the house of Zeba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both his feet. You know, we read that story, that account, and it's a beautiful story. <clears throat> it's a beautiful story of, the, of David's promise to Jonathan and his fulfillment of that promise. It's a beautiful story of basically the restora restoration of Mephibosheth, who's brought from obscurity back to the inheritance that he would have had in the, in the house of his grandfather. It's a beautiful story of, of the grace of God that, God that David promised Jonathan he would bestow upon his family. You know, when we look at the life of David and we see this account and we go, this is just kind of a detour <laughs> to a certain extent. You know, the Holy Spirit includes this story for a reason. The Old Testament, the Scripture tells us the events of the Old Testament, the, the worship of the Old Testament, all of those things were a shadow of things to come. They were an illustration of a truth of God that would be fulfilled in the New Testament. 
And for just a few minutes as we close here, I want to look at some parallels that we find in the grace that was shown to Mephibosheth and the grace that God has shown to us through his son Jesus. First of all, like Mephibosheth, we were all crippled by the fall. Mankind was crippled by the fall. Back there when Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, Romans chapter 5 and 12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all have sinned. You know what? We have the, all have the same problem. We all have the same problem. It's called sin. The thing that separates us from God. The, things that, the thing that makes us imperfect in the eyes of God. The thing that we cannot cure on our own. That we cannot fix. That we cannot unsin. That we cannot pay enough to undo. And the scripture tells us in the wages of sin is death. Like Mephibosheth, we also mankind in general and each of us individually were crippled but God had made a promise to Abraham back even in the garden of Eden from the time of the fall God had a plan to restore us to our place at his table to our place in his family and he began by making a promise to Abraham back when he told him to go to the land of Canaan and he made certain promises to him and the final one of those was that through his seed would all nations of the earth be blessed. Through his, through his descendants would come the Messiah, the Christ. And he also made that promise to David who was a descendant of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob who the promises were re- re- repeated through. And back there in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that we talked about, when when the Lord told David, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up a seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forevermore, which is the promise again that the Messiah, the Christ, would come through the descendants of David. And like David, at the right time, God fulfilled his promise. Galatians 4 and verse 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. At the, at the, at the, full, at the fullness of time. You know, when was the right time for David? When the events had come to pass that reminded him it's time. In God's perfect plan, at the perfect time, Christ came into this world. The fulfillment of God's promise. Romans 5 and 6 says, For when we were still, still without strength, crippled, <laughs> in due time Christ died for the ungodly, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, but perhaps for a good man some would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Like David, God sent for us. John 3 and 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but the world, that the world through him might be saved. The message was sent to Mephibosheth of the goodness of God, of the, of the kindness that God desired, or David desired to bestow upon him. So Christ brought with him the message of the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God that he desired to bestow on all of us. 
like Mephibosheth, hid in fear from David. We are separated from God by sin. We are isolated by guilt and fear in a desolate place. A spiritual Lodabar. Ignorant of God in his desire to show his love and grace and mercy toward us. Separated from God by sin and ignorant of the will of God, we are fearful of God. We are fearful of his intentions. We dread the condemnation that we believe God desires to execute upon us. But Colossians 1.21 tells us, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless above reproach in his sight. What does he, he bestows us with that. Holiness, blamelessness, not by things that we have done, but by the gift that he's given us through his son Jesus. Like David, when God announced his intentions toward us, he told us not to fear. Luke chapter 2, when Jesus was born into this world, the angel said unto them, speaking to the shepherds who they made the announcement to, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I bring you tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. There has never been better news to a world that lived in Lodabar, in isolation, in fear, in ignorance of God, to say that fullness of time has come. God's promise has arrived. A Savior is here. Like David, God seeks our good to show his kindness, his grace, and to restore us. But God, Ephesians 2 and 4, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. The kindness of God, the mercy of God, the loving kindness of God that David showed to Mephibosheth is the same type of grace and mercy, but how much greater it is because of the price that was paid to obtain it, God's own son. Like David has given us through Christ, God has given us through Christ a place in his family that we may eat at his table forever. Galatians 3.26 For you were all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. In Titus 3 and 4, but when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior toward man, appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We are his children. We have a place at his table not because of anything that we've just done to deserve it or earn it, but because of this loving kindness and mercy that he bestows upon us because of his son, Jesus Christ. Like Mephibosheth, we can never forget what God has done for us. The last verse 
of that chapter says this. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both his feet. That's interesting, isn't it? The last thing it does is reminds us, you know what? Mephibosheth lived in the, he lived in the palace. He ate at the king's table, but you know what? He was still lame. He was not cured of the, the, the handicap that he had with his legs. And every time that Mephibosheth shuffled his way to the table or was carried to the table, and those legs were hidden under the table of the king, he was reminded of the mercy and the grace that David had shown to him. We too, through Jesus Christ, have the remission of sins. We are, we are blessed. We are, we are given the righteousness of Christ because we are covered by him. But you know what? <laughs> we still have the frailty. We still sin. We, have, we were not made immune to sin when we became Christians. And every time that we stumble and we sin, we are reminded. We are reminded of the tremendous grace of God that he's bestowed upon us. We are reminded that we've not earned it, that we're not worthy of it. But it's by his loving kindness and his mercy that he bestows that upon us. In John chapter 1 and verse 5, the scripture says, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from, from all unrighteousness. Each time we come to the Lord's table, we remember his death and suffering. We remember his body that was broken for us. We remember his blood that was poured out for us. And we remember our need for that, our need for God's grace and how great the Father's love for us. Can you relate to Mephibosheth? <laughs> Can you look in your life and, have a, and relate do you remember a time when you were in spiritual Lodabar? Separated from God, living in fear of condemnation? Not ignorant of, of God's love and will towards you? Alienated from God in sin and in fear? But then you heard the good news. <sighs> then you heard the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus had died for our sins, that God's desire was to, to reconcile us back to him to forgive our sins, to make us his child, to give us a seat at his table, of his love for us and his dying for our sins to redeem us. So we accepted that gift. You accepted that gift through the obedience to his word. You believed the promise that was made. You believed that Jesus had died for your sins. You repented. You had a change of heart because you wanted to not live the way that you had lived, but you wanted to live for God. You wanted to be a part of his family. You confessed his name. You confessed because of, the, of what you believed in your heart. You said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And you were buried with him in baptism to be born again into his family, to arise to walk in newness of life. And you received forgiveness and healing and peace and joy and a place at his table forever. Can you relate to that? 
we can relate to that this morning. But maybe there are some who can't relate to that. Maybe you can relate to Mephibosheth in the fact that you recognize what it's like to be in spiritual Lodabar, but you've never, you were ignorant of God's plan, of his desire to show his loving kindness toward you. That his son died for you, that he desires to bring you into his fold, into his family, to, make, to give you a seat at his table forever. Do you believe that? And believing that, will you confess that? That you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Do you have a desire to turn your heart from the way that we have lived, to be born again into his family and to be baptized into him, to receive his forgiveness and healing in a place at his table? If we can assist you this morning with that or with prayers or in any way, we'd invite you to come forward while we stand and sing the song that's been selected.